Welcome to the Life Over Coffee podcast, conversations for transformation. Hello, my friends. This is Rick Thomas with Life Over Coffee, and we have conversations for transformation. Our mission statement is to bring hope and help to you and others by creating resources that spark conversation for transformation. What I want to talk about over the next few moments is something that is important to all of us who have children, and that is parenting. I want to give you a biblical perspective on parenting. This will not be an exhaustive presentation because there is so much that we want to learn and apply to our lives and to our families, but I have titled this. Parenting Our Children from Zero to Adulthood. And I trust that this will be a benefit to you. And as always, you can go to our coffee shop at lifeovercoffee.com and we have tons of resources on all things parenting, husband and wife relationship, children, teenagers, etc. And so please search our coffee shop to find uh, resources that are important to you. And I trust that this webinar will be one of those valuable resources that you will watch over and over again. Parenting our children from zero to adulthood. And the big idea is that we aim to release our children into the culture where they will eventually live. We want, to, we want them to live less under our guidance and governance and more under God's direction and authority. We have older children now, but we had always told them in their young lives that we want to incrementally release them into God's world. In order to do that well, we wanted them to learn how to obey us. We wanted them to learn obedience, and we also wanted to teach them well hoping that some eventual day they will step into God's world as young men and women under his authority. The big idea is that as they leave your governance, as they leave your guidance, uh, they will not miss a beat because they will continue to walk under God's direction and authority. Of course, the, the assumption is that we are teaching them well so that they can make that smooth transition from parents to children to God to young adults. And so that is the big idea. The key verse that I want to look at is a familiar verse with you all. It is Matthew 22, verses 37 through 39. The Lord said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now we learn from this passage of Scripture that the entire Old Testament all of the laws in the Old Testament hang on these two. In fact, you could succinctly say that the two great commandments are to love God and to love others. We used to tell our children that there are only four words in order to be a success in life, and, well, two of the words are the same. Love God, love others. Of course, we are interpreting success. We're modifying it with the word biblical biblical success. Paul was a success, but he lived his entire adult life with a thorn in his flesh. Joseph was a success, but he spent many years in Egypt and never came out alive. Of course, Christ was a success as well, 
and he died on the cross for our sins. And so when I use the word success or being successful in this world, I do not mean that in such a way that it aligns with what our culture teaches. No, it aligns with God's word, which means that we do have to make an argument for suffering because sometimes God will bring suffering into our lives and into our children's lives in order for them in the context of what I'm saying here, to be a success. And so if you want to be biblically successful, whether we are parenting our children or living our own lives, then loving God and loving others sums it up as well as any other passage in God's Word. And so that is the key verse for this seminar. Now, I want to begin with a big word, as you see on the screen here. It is legalism. And the reason I am starting off with this, and perhaps this is the the only thing that uh, some of us need to hear, because this is one of our strongest temptations. And what I mean by this is that as as, as parents, we can look in the rearview mirror and, well, we can see all the mistakes that we have made. We can begin to regret, especially as our children grow older and they are not adopting the life that we had hoped that they would, the life that we'd lead. Uh, They're not living for God and others, and of course, we can uh, take too much of that weight on ourselves and even fall into a victim mindset, and we would say things like, if only I had, or we may look back on some sad, regretful moment and say, I wish I had not done that. Now, for parents who are tempted that way, I want them to hear this clearly. Your mistakes, whatever they are, are not greater than God's grace. God can save our children despite our failures. Sometimes in counseling, I would tell parents that I was in jail when I was 15 years old, and that is true. My parents made many mistakes, and there was probably regret in their lives. But God's grace is greater. And so there are two ditches that we must stay out of. In one ditch, I will call it the ditch of presumption to where we just take God's grace for granted and we can live any life that we want to. Well, no, that would be sinful. We are to cooperate with God. In his mysterious wisdom, in God's mind, he has chosen primary and secondary causes. Primary cause is what God will do, and nothing can transcend primary cause. However, God will use secondary causal agents in order to accomplish his purposes, and so therefore we are in a relationship with him. As Christians, we are part of God's restoration team, meaning that we must do our part as we cooperate with him in what he is doing in our children's lives. And so in one ditch is the ditch of presumption. Of course, most caring parents, Christian parents, rarely jump into that ditch and they do not presume against God's grace, but they will jump into the ditch of legalism as they think back on their lives, the mistakes that they made, wishing they had a do-over or a a reboot 2.0, knowing that if they had done better, their children would have done better. Well, that makes the parent, in essence, little G-O-D, know God's grace is greater. And so perhaps this is the only thing that you need to hear in this parenting seminar. We must not succumb to the temptations of legalism while staying out of the ditch of 
presumption. And so the big idea as secondary causal agents is what Paul told us in 1 Corinthians 11.1. Follow me as I follow Christ. What does that mean? That means that we interject ourselves into the sequencing that God lays out for your child, meaning that God intends for your child to follow you as you follow God. You become exhibit A to everything that you want your child to be. Paul did not tell his friends in Corinth that I want you to just follow God as though I don't matter and I'm going to extract myself from the process. No, he inserted himself in the sequencing, in the line, and he pointed to them and said, look at me, follow me. Follow me as I follow Christ. Again, we don't want to presume on God's grace. We have a responsibility. In Ephesians 5.1, he said something similar when he said, As beloved children, we are to imitate God. God has given us communicable attributes, meaning things that he has communicated or given to us. For example, God is love, God is forgiving, God is merciful, God is persevering, God is patient. And there are many things that God is that we are as well or we have the possibility of becoming because we are made in his image. In fact, it would be good to look at Jesus Christ to see how he imitated God himself while he was on planet Earth. The four Gospels would give us perfect pictures of what that looks like as we imitate God. The big idea here is that we want to make sure that we are cooperating with God in the rearing of our children. And then in Philippians 4, 9, Paul said that whatever you have heard and seen and received and learned from me, I want you to practice those things and the God of peace will be with you. Now, that is a profound passage of Scripture. And so what Paul is saying in these three passages is that I am going to follow Christ. I'm going to imitate Christ. And as you see here on the screen, that means that a husband is not the leader of his home, but Christ is. He is following Christ, and his wife follows him, and the children follow them. And that is the order of a god centered home. God is in charge. God is leading. The husband is following, then the wife, and then the children. Now, by the way, some people will look at this and say, well, I am not Jesus. I cannot do what he did because he was perfect and I am not. Well, you know what? That is just okay, because Christians have what I call the secret weapon, meaning that we are, all, we are the only people in the world who can repent. You see, when we sin, God or the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin. That's because we have been made alive in God. We are spiritual beings. Therefore, we grieve and quench the Holy Spirit. In addition to that, our consciences bear witness, letting us know that we have done wrong. And then God gives us grace to be able to transform. The world cannot do that because they are in a natural, unregenerated 
regenerated state, meaning that they cannot discern the spiritual things of God. In fact, those things are foolishness to them, as Paul would also tell the Corinthians in chapter 2, verse number 14. And so Christians have the ability to transform because in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 and 25, God will grant his children repentance. And so this is not a call to despair. It's also not a call to be perfect because we know that we cannot. However, we have a game plan when we mess up. As John said in 1 John 1, 9, if we Christians confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, there are two main reasons that this is important. One, well, we want to spread the fame of God by keeping our slate clean. We want to always be a confessional person where we confess our sins. We are repenting. We are maturing. We are growing. We are transforming. We always want to do that, and that will spread the fame of God uh, near and far. But the second reason is we want to give our children something to imitate. Guess what? They are little sinners, too, and they're going to grow up, and, well, the presumption is they will marry uh, someone, and, of course, they will marry imperfect people. What if they never learn how to repent? What if they never learn how to confess their sins? They've never seen it modeled in their home, and it was never taught to them. And so when you read these verses in 1 Corinthians 11:1, 1, follow me as I follow Christ, well, the assumption is we're going to follow imperfectly, but Christians do not have to be discouraged because we can repent. And so in Philippians 4, 9, where Paul said, everything that you've heard and learned and seen and received from me, Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Well, the hope is, is the thing that we are practicing, well, one of the things that we are practicing is repentance. One of the greatest gifts that you can imitate before your children is when you fail. And as you do, as you confess that sin and seek forgiveness from all the appropriate parties, you are giving your children a wonderful gift. And so as I say, follow me as I follow Jesus, I recognize imperfection is built into the cake, but so should repentance. And if it is, then we're giving our children great hope because they have a path forward when they make their mistakes too. Now, what I want to look at just very briefly are the three stages of a child's life. This is a thumbnail sketch that will give you an idea or give you a visual for those of you who are watching the actual slide presentation. This will give you a visual of how you can think about parenting, especially if your children are young, but regardless of their age, uh, you can properly categorize your children based on what you see here. And of course, each of these three sections would determine how you parent them. And so children are born first in a dependent state. Now I'm going to give you arbitrary numbers like well, what you see here is zero to two. This is when children are totally dependent. They can't speak hardly. They learn to speak at the top end of two years of age. They learn to crawl and climb as well. But there's virtually nothing that they can do, and they're growing into the next stage of their lives, which I call the interdependent stage. Now, this was the largest 
part or the section of parenting kids. There's two parts to it, from 2 to 12, and then, of course, from 12 to 22. And so the interdependent stage arbitrarily is from the ages of 2 to 22. And you'll see as they grow from the dependent stage, they learn to crawl, they learn to walk, they learn to climb. By the way, some people call this the terrible twos once they hit the two-year-old mark. I do not care for that term, and I don't use it and never have used it with our children. These aren't the terrible twos. That's a negative and pessimistic way of talking about our children. Uh, This stage in their lives, the dependent stage to where they're growing into interdependence is actually an opportunity for parents to step up and really model the gospel for their children and to begin to teach them obedience. I'm going to talk more about obedience later on in the webinar, but let me make this point here that the first 10 years of a child's life are some of the most important because this is the cement setting time. When a child becomes a teenager, and again, some will say terrible twos, and then they will say, well, just be prepared because teenagers rebel. That's unfortunate that people talk that way, too, because it's just not true. Not every teenager rebels. My wife would be an example of that person. Uh, her testimony uh, affirms that the grace, of gr- the grace of God is real, is true, is measurable, is subjective, and it is transformative. She never was a rebellious teenager. And so when we talk negatively about our children, whether they are two years old or 12 years old, it's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy. But in 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 the best case scenario, which is not good at all, uh, we're not making a faith proclamation about the goodness and kindness of God and what he can do to a person's life. And so I would appeal to you not to talk about the terrible twos, but see that as an opportunity. And then as they grow into the teenage years, we have more opportunities before us. But as they grow into the teenager uh, teen years, uh, perhaps you can think of it like a plant that is shooting through the ground, breaking through the sod. And we look at that plant and say, wow, where did that come from? How come that child is so rebellious now? Well, uh, he has been growing or she has been growing through the sod for many years now. For a decade. This is not new. This has been uh, in place in the child's heart from the earliest days of the child's life. And when you see these adult language and adult actions, adult behaviors breaking through the sod and are surprised by that, it just did not happen when they turn the magic number of 12, but it is something that has been growing in their hearts for many years. And that is why these early uh, years in a child's life of child development are essential, uh, that parents began teaching the children how to obey, how to submit, how to uh, follow orders or obey rules, if you will. And again, I'll show you in a later graphic how we release them and let up on uh, the rules that we teach them early on. And then we, at that point, we do more teaching than trying to get them to obey. If we have trained them well, uh, 
theoretically, they should have learned obedience before they are two years of age. And if you teach them to obey early in their life, then you can start letting up on the rules because they will automatically obey because of that early training. And so that's why by the time a child is two or three years of age, they should be mostly compliant at that time if you have taught them obedience. And then as they grow into this interdependent stage, and you see two sections here, 2 to 12 and 12 to 22, and I've di- I divided it here because typically around the age of 12 is when you have the sex talk uh, with the child. It's also when the child is growing on the upper end of interdependence because they're more mobile, uh, they are more independent, even though they're not totally so. And so the game changes uh, around the 12-year mark. And again, that's arbitrary. It could be 10 to 13 years of age, depending on each child. Now, what the parent wants to do uh, all during this season of a child's life is to pray that God would impose himself in that child's life and they would be regenerated. They would become a Christian. Without being born again, then there is no hope for this child to have long-term sustainable change. And we have to understand this. And this is why I was saying earlier that we want to guard against legalism. Uh, we are we do have a responsibility as secondary causal agents but the weight of a child's transformation the weight of a child loving god and loving others more than himself or herself that is between the child and god it's not because primarily of what we have done now again we stay out of the ditches of presumption and legalism but it is imperative that this child becomes born again and so there Therefore, our most important prayer for our children is that God would impose himself in their lives and regenerate them. And if he does, then the ability for the child to not only obey and receive our teaching, but they have the favor of God on their lives as well. In James 4, 6, Uh, James says that God opposes the proud, meaning he is a warring army against this child. But if the child humbles himself under the mighty hand of God, then God's empowering favor is on him. And so rather than God resisting him, God is like a fan, a a box fan is blowing him toward greater and greater grace. God is for him and is helping him to mature, and that's why we want to pray and ask God to do what we cannot do at all, regenerate the child so that he can or she can mature. Now, as they move through the interdependent stage, eventually they will be independent. Now, on the screen here, I say that is 22 years of age and above. Definitely, that is not 35 years of age. You do want the child out of the home as soon as appropriate. Some children leave earlier. I'm using 22 as my arbitrary number uh, for when a child graduates uh, college and they begin living on their own, paying all of their bills, taking care uh, of their lives without uh, the physical or spiritual oversight of the parents. And so this is a 
a thumbnail sketch of the three stages of a child's life. Now, of course, inside of each one of these stages, we have lots of questions because there's a lot of things that we need to do, need to know and to implement as we cooperate with God in the growth and the maturity of our children. And so with that in mind, I want to lay out what I believe to be a biblical model for rearing children. I'm going to take Paul's language and tweak it just a bit from Ephesians 6, 4, that we are to rear our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. I'm using the word admonition, and, and I'm, I'm going to use a synonym or something that approximates it, and that is the word structure. These are not my words, by the way. I, I, I believe I, I learned these in my uh, master's program many, many years ago. I think that's where they came from, though it's a bit vague at this point. But I'm using structure as admonition and support uh, for nurturing. Uh, and with that, with those two words in mind, I want to draw a sketch here, a graft of what biblical parenting should look like. And I'm going to use the ages from zero to 20 years of age, going back to our previous graph of 22 years of age when they move into independence. And so what we see here on the screen, zero to 20, with structure on one side, support on the other. And then our parenting should look like this green arrow going from the bottom left-hand corner to the upper right in a diagonal, in a diagonal fashion. Now, of course, our parenting is never going to be this smooth, and so remember, this is just a sketch for illustration purposes. But the big idea is that early in the child's life, as I was saying in a previous slide, that we want our obedience to be quick and decisive and memorable and consistent because we want to teach them how to obey. It is much easier to teach an infant and a toddler to obey than it is to step into a teenager's life and begin to teach them obedience when they are ready to step out and do things on their own. While this child is in a dependent state, you want to teach them what to depend on, and they need to depend on you. They need to depend on your words. They need to hear you clearly, and they need to feel what it's like when they do not obey, recognizing that there are consequences for disobedience. Now, of course, you're not only doing this to help them to live well in God's world, but you're also imitating the gospel. There are consequences for sin. Christ suffered the consequence for our sin, and that is the ultimate consequence that we are imitating when we teach obedience and discipline in our children's life. If we do not teach obedience and if we do not give them discipline, then we are saying that sin is not a big deal. We are saying that Christ dying on the cross was not a big deal. But the idea of teaching obedience and discipline when you do wrong as a consequence, not only does it help them, but it also uh, teaches them that there will be a day in their life when they will realize that they cannot be completely obedient uh, in all ways, and they need someone to take all of their sin upon himself, and that would be Christ. They will value sin in the sense that they see it as a sobering reality 
immorality that they do not mock or make fun of. They are sensitive to sin. They recognize that it is it is real and it's detrimental to a person's soul. They have a high view of sin because they've been taught obedience and they have suffered discipline when uh, they have done wrong. And so when they come to think about these big concepts like the gospel and God sending his only begotten son and Christ being our vicarious sufferer, taking our sins upon himself, his flesh being roasted like in the Old Testament uh, temple. They will have that sobriety and that seriousness, and the gospel will not be a stretch goal for them because it has been embedded into their psyches, into their souls all the days of their young lives, and they know that sin is something that you cannot mess with, and so you want to build that into their lives early on, teaching them obedience. There are consequences for disobedience. It will not only equip them, upfit them for God's world, but it will also communicate the gospel in the clearest ways to them. Now, not only that, when a parent cares for their child in such a way that they they bring structure, meaning they bring boundaries and fences into their lives, that child intuitively knows, my daddy cares, my mommy cares about me. Imagine a child being let loose in the mall uh, where there's people all around and there's uh, a hundred or or 500 doors that they could walk in and multiple hallways that they could walk down. What does that child do? That child cries. That child feels lost. That child is insecure. That child has no parameters. There's no structure in that child's life. The parent that does not bring discipline or structure or in Paul's language in 6.4 of Ephesians doesn't bring admonition into the child's life is a disobedient, unloving parent. And so early on in the child's life, you teach this biblical model. You're heavy in obedience, and then you're slowly releasing that until the time when they walk out the home, walk out of the home, the final time in their lives as young adults in an independent state, and they have been trained to be men and women under God's authority. There's a smooth transition from the authority in the home to the authority of the universe, God Almighty. Now, simultaneously, as you see on the screen, not only are you teaching them obedience and slackening that up as they mature, but you're also increasing uh, the amount of teaching or support or nurturing that you're bringing to this child as they grow in their language and their categories and their understanding, as they are regenerated and are able to discern or intuit spiritual concepts from God's Word, then you want to teach them more and more and more. Now, many parents know this as their children become 13, 14 years of age, and it's 11 o'clock at night, and they want to talk to you for two hours. Those are our opportunities to come alongside our children and just be that loving, guiding hand to them uh, when they're in those most teachable moments. And so theoretically, of course, it doesn't look like this with the green arrow going diagonally because uh, parenting is full of ups and downs, but you get the idea of how we want to think about parenting our children and move through the different stages of their lives from dependent to interdependent to 
independent. Now, I want to walk through a couple unbiblical models of what this could look like. And so on this screen, we have what I call the legalistic model. And quite simply, this is the parent that is just heavy-handed rules from zero to 20. They never let up on the rules. In fact, uh, it could be, and in many cases it is, as the child grows older and steps into the teenage years, that the rules even become harder and harsher. Sometimes that is because uh, the parent, well, the model doesn't work. And and the child is trying to grow in independence and make decisions and, and do things on their own, and the parent can even come down harder and harsher on the child. Now, also, uh, one of the things that happens with, in this kind of model, a couple things maybe, uh, this typically is understood as a, a legalistic religious model where the community or the religion focus more uh, on the rules, external behaviors, what you eat, where you go, what you see, what you wear, what you do, and so forth. And so they're really focused on uh, the behaviors, the externals of the person. Uh, some of that is uh, guided by a misunderstanding of what John was saying in 1 John chapter 2, love not the world or the things of the world. Uh, they see that more in a Gnostic way, that the world is bad, the spirit is good, so you separate from the world. And that is unfortunate teaching because that's not what John was saying at all. And so they're teaching some form of religious, legalistic, behavioral modification, and that just doesn't work. And so part of why this happens is it could be because of religious training, and then another is, is quite simply, uh, fear. By the way, fear uh, typically is what's going on in the heart of the religious legalist. The parent is afraid that the child's going to make a wrong decision, and so they quarantine the child. They uh, surveil the child. Uh, they segregate the child, separate the child from the world. And what happens as you look at this bottom line uh, going across the screen, you could Think of it like a cannon, a spring-loaded cannon, and by the time that child is a teenager and most definitely 20 years of age, they, the pressure has built up so much that they shoot out of that cannon uh, and, and many times just go wild because they haven't, been, they haven't learned how to obey and haven't been nurtured according to the previous slide. And many times you'll find that child sitting in the bar and doing uh, many ungodly things because of this inferior uh, model that some Christians teach. And then you have the opposite of that, which is the licentious model. Of course, it is light on rules light on legalism, and it's really not giving any kind of structure to the child. Go back to my illustration about the child in the mall with no parameters, no fences at all. They feel insecure. They explore more than they should. They haven't been trained. There's been no obedience or security uh, placed into their lives, and so there are no rules, and they can do virtually anything that they want, and many of them do. The irony here is that the legalistic model and the licentious model can uh, send our children to the same place and to the same bar living an ungodly life. They just get there through different shaping influences. One comes from a deeply legalistic religious background. The other one comes from licentious, a licentious model. And by the way, sometimes this happens because these parents maybe were part of a legalistic religious system and they're overreacting to it. And so they have more of uh, let anything go kind of mindset 
which can just uh, create all kinds of problems in the souls of little children reared in this model. And then you have on the screen here the licentious to legalistic model. It looks like this. As you see, uh, they uh, in the licentious model, uh, virtually no rules. You can do anything that you want to do. Uh, the rules are very light. And then at some point in the child's life, it goes from licentiousness or liberality to a legalistic model where the hammer comes down and authoritarianism ensues and things become very heavy-handed in the child's life. Now, what you'll usually find at this point, you see a star here uh, on the slide when the child was uh, roughly uh, 10, 10 and a half years of age. Something typically happens in the parent's life that makes this abrupt change. Could be that the parents become Christians that they have lived a, a hedonistic lifestyle, and then God does a work in their hearts, and one or both of them become Christians, and then they look at their children, and they, they realize that they have just made a mess, and they've made mistakes, and, and then they bring in the rules as an overreaction. Well, when you do this, um, there's a way of going from a, a licentious to a gospel-centered model, but when you go from liberality to a legalistic model, uh, it can really uh, cause a lot of problems in the children's lives because it's like, hey, we were doing fine. We were living large, and now why is the heavy-handedness of rules coming down? And it can really create a distaste in the child's life for God, the Bible, the Christians, and they can have a warped view of what Christianity is all about, and so this child ends up, well, in the same bar with the legalist and the licentious person because he's ticked about what has happened during his teenage years. And then you have this model that is the opposite, legalist to the licentious model. And so we have parents that are very legalistic, how they have a, a lot of rules, and, and then they, they make a change when the child is 10 or 10, 10 and a half years of age, uh, and this is where they have less rules. And unfortunately, the teaching here that you see on the screen, it's not as good as it ought to be. The teaching is inferior because they have, uh, they have overshot the gospel by going from the legalistic ditch to the licentious ditch. And what you see, this star on the screen, uh, this is where uh, the parents realize that they've made a mistake in their legalistic religious environment, and so they just take the brakes completely off. And, of course, the kids are great. Give me that iPhone and let me go all the places where I have been envying uh, to go all of these years with my friends in Christian school when it's not really a Christian school at all. It's just a Christian school in name only, but all of these pagan children are, are in there and they're doing all these great things and I can't do it because my parents are legalistic and now uh, they realize they made a mistake and so they back off all the rules and they go into a licentious model and, well, there's three other kids in the bar all Already, and so this one's about to join them, and this is when you go from the legalistic to the licentious model. One final one. I call this the double-minded model. The double-minded model is, well, it, it's double-minded. Uh, sometimes there's rules and sometimes there's not. It's depending really on the whims of, of the parent. 
maybe the parent is had a hard day at work and children just get out of my hair. Uh, go play on the internet. Here's an iPhone. Go play uh, with it. Go do what you want to do. I'm tired. I need a, a break the day. And then sometimes they recognize that the kids are, are just a little too wild. And so uh, they start implementing rules or maybe the children are annoying and uh, they're on my last nerve. And so they bring down the rules just to uh, manipulate and mandate some peace and quiet for a little bit. And this is the double-minded model where uh, the children really never know what's up. This is the parent or, or the child, the teenager, uh, that will text on the way home and, and ask their sister or their brother. Uh, How is mom today? Is she doing okay? How is dad today? I need to know as I come home because I never get the same thing uh, on any given day. That is the double-minded model which amps up all kinds of soul noise in the child's life creating, well, the same kind of mindset. I just want to get out of here. And so you have a half a dozen kids sitting in the bar and they all came from different models of parenting, as I have outlined here on the screen. Of course, I'm going to go back to the uh, last, uh, the first one that I showed you, and that is the biblical model. It is the one uh, that I recommend, recognizing that this green arrow going from left to right, would it, it would have more of an up and down stock market visual to it. It's never that straight and and, and not uh, that clean. But what you're really looking for are trajectories. Uh, you're also recognizing that each child is different. You'll have an oversensitive child that you will have to spend more time with. Maybe they have a sensitive conscience, and then you'll have the, the child where it seems like you're just pouring water on a duck's back, that nothing seems to penetrate at all. You have the talkative child and the quiet child. You have the athletic child, non-athletic, the reader and the non-reader. I mean, every child is different, and so we need to make sure that we are nematically discerning our children. I mean that we are walking in the Spirit, recognize that, recognizing that we need to customize our care to each kid in our home because none of them are the same. But what you see here is a trajectory, a goal, an aim, an idea from left to right. It is heavy in obedience in the beginning, and you lighten up and lighten up. The ideal is that when these children do step out into God's world as independent adults, that they are living under God's authority, that it is intuitive to them. It is also compelling to them that they have a desire to obey because they have seen the blessedness and the consequence of obedience. They've seen the privilege of obedience, that when I obey, God's favor is on my life, as opposed that when I am a hellion, when I sin and don't repent, when I do unkind things, when I do things that are contrary to God's word, I've seen the disfavor of God on my life, and I've also experienced those consequences. And if this is implemented well, obedience, and taught well, the support and nurturing, hopefully that it will be that intuitive in the child's mind so that when they step out into God's world, they will continue this trajectory that they have been on since birth. And so what you see here is more of a biblical model. Now, it's important as our children are going through this, as I said, uh, sin is not neat. It doesn't cooperate with us. 
and we also recognize our role as secondary causal agents. You see on the screen here, 1 Corinthians 3, 6, it says, I, talking about Paul, Paul planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. And so it's important that we understand this going back to the very first graphic that I showed you about legalism. We can't be legalists thinking that if we had only done this or not done that, then our children would be okay. If our children are okay, meaning they're saved and maturing in Christ, it will be because God gave the growth. We work under the limitation of planting and watering. That is all that we can do. And the prodigal son is an excellent illustration of this. You can read this passage in Luke 15, verses 11 through 18. It goes further than verse number 18, but I'm going to illustrate just these eight verses here on the screen to give you a, a picture of what it looks like and then make a couple comments that will help us as we think about parenting our children. And by the way, this applies to anybody that we're discipling, friend or foe, family or not. Uh, this applies to anyone that we love, we care about, and we want to see them uh, succeed, biblically speaking. And so in the story of the prodigal son, we have a young man who did not want to obey his dad. He wanted to fly high, wide, and far. He wanted to go live in the world, be of the world, enjoy the world, imbibe the world. And so he asked his dad for his money, and he took off. And he lived this life, verses 13, 14, 15, 16, tells the story of, it, of his hedonism and also his heartbreak, which you can imagine, be sure your sin will find you out. There is a payday someday. And, of course, he experienced that in this story. And in verse 17, uh, he face-planted, he, he fell face first, so to speak, in the hog lot of life. And when he did, the light came on and he recognized that he had really played the fool. He had done wrong. And at that moment, he began to think about his father, the person who loved him the most, the person who loved him last. Well, this was the person that he wanted to go see and begin a reconciliation and restoration process. And so this is a thumbnail of, well, many of our lives, honestly. And I know uh, many of you as adults, you, you have uh, lived this life. Uh, you have, have sowed your wild oats, as we uh, say sometimes. And and I most definitely did that as God saved me when I was 25 years old. And so I had a quarter of a century before I got to the hog lot of life and the light came on and I realized that I needed to be born again. Here's the thing for parents to remember. It's right in the middle of the screen here and it is a question mark. Now what I mean by this question mark is you do not know where your child is. Is your child at verse 12 getting ready to step out in the world? By the way, as I was saying earlier, you won't necessarily know that. Those formative child development years of 0 to 10, 0 to 12, when the cement is set, and then all of a sudden it pops out of the ground and you have this rebel plant uh, growing out of the ground and you're shocked by it. But again, it's been growing for more than a decade. But when it pops out of the ground and you see what you have, 
And then the hope is this child would come to his senses. But again, you don't know if your child is just embarking upon their wild journey at verse number 13, or perhaps they're at verse number 16 and 17, and they're getting ready to change. You just don't know when that's going to happen. Some of you listening or watching this, uh, you have been waiting many years, even decades, for your children to repent and come to their senses. Others have waited fewer years. Uh, This is a subjective thing. It's in the mind of God. But our call is to water and plant faithfully while trusting God to give the growth and not spend our times worrying or living in fear because our child hasn't come to verse 17 as of yet. And so we want to rest and trust while we are planting and watering. Now, also, as we're doing this, we definitely want to try to discern uh, what is going on in the heart of the child. In Matthew 7, 16, it says, you will recognize your children, I am inserting that here, by their fruits. Jesus asked rhetorically, are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Well, of course not which explains the first verse that he mentioned, or the first sentence that he mentioned here, you will recognize them by their fruits. Now, I say it this way, show me the fruit in someone's life, and I will tell you what they think about God. Let me illustrate that by giving you a piece of fruit. So on the screen, we have an apple here. Now, at the bottom of the screen, you see a heart. You show me a person's fruit, and I can tell you I can tell you in a vague way, not in an explicit way, what they think about God. Let me illustrate it this way. As we work the fruit down to the heart, the first thing we're going to see is the fruit in a person's life. That is their behavior. That is what is above ground. That is measurable and observable, and everyone can see it, and it is what it is. There's no ambiguity there. But as you begin to get underneath their behaviors, what you will recognize is that their behaviors are fed by choices. Their behaviors reveals their choices. You can't have behaviors without choosing, and so there is a logicalness to what I'm sharing with you here. You want to dig a little deeper. Why did they choose that? Because they have a belief system. I believe that I need to choose this in order for this outcome. That's quite simply how it would work. And so as you get underneath their beliefs, what you will find are their motives. I am motivated uh, to have a certain outcome. Therefore, I believe that I must choose this in order to have that outcome. All right, let's, let's use anger as an example because it's something that we can all relate to. Let's say that a spouse is angry at another spouse, or a child is, is angry at a parent, or a parent is angry at a child. They want this child to behave in a certain way, and so anger is what comes out of them. And so the motivation of their heart, honestly, the motivation of their heart, though they may not say it as clearly as this, they, they're wanting to manipulate this child or manipulate this person into a certain kind of behavior. That's the motivation. And so my motivation is to get this child to change. I'm using the word manipulation here because that's what's happening. Therefore, they believe that they must choose anger in order to get this controlled behavior. And so once you get underneath why the anger is there, you're seeing some motives that are 
either blatantly impure or unwittingly impure. I think there are many people that do not have that kind of self-awareness where they recognize what is going on that deeply in their lives. They just do it because they're habituated in being angry, and they don't give much thought to how their worship structure would stack up here, as you see on the screen. But as you get underneath their motives, what you're going to see is what they think about God. And for the angry person, quite frankly, it means I'm not going to trust God. I'm going to do it my way. And so the angry person has a deeply rooted theological problem. Show me the fruit in someone's life, and I will tell you what they think about God. And so the parent says, I want my child to behave a certain way, and I know how to get that Uh, make that behavior happen. That's the motive. And so I believe that if I get sinfully angry in this moment, they choose that. And of course, the fruit of their life is controlled, manipulated obedience. But what that reveals in the parent's life is a weak relationship with God. They're not choosing to do it God's way. They're They're choosing to do it their way. And so in order to address the behavior or change the behavior in the parent's life, you have to address their theology. They have a deeply rooted theological problem where they are dismissing God, marginalizing God, and because of their motivation to get this result quickly or soon, uh, they do it in a self-reliant way as this worship structure reveals. James talked about anger this way. He said, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire, you do not have, so you murder. You covet, cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Notice that James is asking, where did that anger come from? As you saw on the previous screen, that anger came from the heart. A heart that has a distorted view or an awkward relationship with God to where they are marginalizing God and they're letting their passions and their desires and their coveting, by the way, those are synonyms, it's three ways of saying the same thing, they're letting their desires run all over them uh, in an ungodly way, and that is the cause of the anger that comes out of their mouth. Sometimes you will see it happening this way. Let me illustrate on the screen using James's language about the war within. And so when heat, let's say a child, represents the heat in this illustration, the child does something that is just infuriating or frustrating. And so heat comes into the parent's life. And if those, if the coveting and the passions and the desires are not biblical, then that heat is going to reveal that. And that's what James was saying. What causes quarrels and conflict is a person who has coveting, sinful passions, sinful desires in their heart. How do you know this? because the heat will reveal what is going on in, in this case, the parent's heart. And then, of course, what's going to come out of that parent is going to be anger. 
And so it is essential that we discern the war that is within ourselves. And the last thing that a parent wants to do is when they respond anger, angrily, sinfully angry to a child, uh, they want to make sure that they don't set themselves up as a victim and set the child up as the blame or the cause of the anger of the child. Whether we're discerning our own hearts or discerning our children, we must go deeper recognizing that there are deeply rooted issues in our hearts that need to be resolved. And if we want to parent well, well, first of all, we need to model these very ideas. And then we want to make sure that we are discerning the child's heart so that we can help them to change. Let me illustrate one final way. As you see on the screen, there is a heart. And then there are actually four components here that you see on the screen. Uh, the sun here is is a picture of, it's a metaphor for the Spirit of God. The book is the Bible, then the community of faith, of course, a, a father, a mother, siblings, a pastor, a small group leader, a youth leader, there is a community. Uh, we want to make sure that we embed our lives and the lives of our children inside a community. It would be presumptuous, it would be arrogant, and it would be ignorant to try to parent outside of being consistently faithful uh, to a local church, a gospel-centered, Bible-teaching local church that really is doing it as, as well as they can. I'm not talking about a perfect church, but a church that gives parents a context uh, for all of them to be in a community where they can receive that body-to-body -body ministry. And so we have the Spirit of God here, the Word of God, the community of God, and then, of course, the heart is the fourth component, and in this case, we'll say that that is a child. And so if the child is acting up, what we want to do is to think through Paul's model, his template, in Ephesians 4. He says, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires. The desires that uh, you could say the desires that James was talking about in James 4, passions, desires, and coveting. Well, we want to help our children to put off that former life. The assumption here is that they are born again uh, by this time. And then we want them to renew their minds, to change their minds, to uh, learn how to take their thoughts captive, to bring their thoughts under the obedience of Christ. And then uh, step number three here to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and true holiness. And of course, the picture of that would be Jesus Christ. And so if you're watering and planting your uh, with your child, according to 1 Corinthians 3, 6, and your child is having uh, problems and is, is more than an episode, but uh, it's a pattern in their life, you want to think through it intelligently, meaning think through it biblically. And so here's a a quick thumbnail sketch of how to think through this. And again, I have more information about discipleship and diagnosing uh, the individual and bringing biblical solutions to them at lifeovercoffee.com. But this will get you started as far as an illustration is concerned. So what we see here on the screen is what did the child do? What was the behavior? And then as you examine this, you want to uh, think through the response of the child. Uh, they did this, which caused that. And then you want to uh, begin thinking about the thoughts of the child and, of course, working back to motives, which is what we looked at on the previous two screens. And so 
in the red here, uh, you have a negative situation that was caused by a negative action or multiple actions usually, which was fed by thoughts, uh, which was fed by a sinful motivation. And you want to help the child to put all that off, to renew their mind through these means of grace that you see on the screen, the Bible, the Spirit of God, the people of God. And as you work with that child, you want to see their motivations change, which would change their thoughts, change their responses, and change their situation. And again, to get into the minutiae of this transformation process, please take advantage of what we offer at lifeovercoffee.com. Now, as I wrap up, I want to give you a few parenting tips that I trust uh, that will help you, and I want to begin with the best advice that you will ever receive. Uh, I believe I read this from uh, the book, uh, A Praying Life by Paul Miller. I, I think that was the book. Uh, but he said the best, at pre- uh, the best advice you would ever receive is, is to pray uh, for your children. The best parenting advice is to pray for your children. I know you know that, uh, but I trust that it will not just be pray for me, but it will be active engagement with God because at some point in the parenting process, uh, you will come to this place where you recognize that God must intervene because there's not enough tips, there's not enough webinars, there's not enough books to be able to solve this problem. It will be the grace of God. Guard against becoming a mini-messiah, meaning uh, that I'm going to do it my way. Uh, This is the legalist who will look back in regret. Uh, They are the Messiah, and the mistakes that they made is why their child is messed up. Now, perhaps there are things that you did wrong, and you can take care of that by repenting, either when it happens or even many years later. Uh, But ultimately, you have to guard your heart from being a mini-messiah. Become a side signpost. What do they see? As I talked about in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Ephesians 5.1, and of course Philippians 4.9. Become a confessional home, meaning that we are regularly, consistently at the drop of a hat. We are confessing our sins, asking for forgiveness, cleaning up our messes. And then finally, what if I blew it? Because I know that there will be many people that are watching this and, well, this is what they will say, uh, because we do blow it. Actually, all of us do, but some people uh, wear the weight of that a bit heavier than they should. First of all, it's not too late. It's just not too late. Uh, Do what you have to do to reconcile. Uh, Do all that depends upon you, as Paul would say in Romans 12, 18. Uh, Don't be negative. Don't go into this in a pessimistic way, but God's grace is greater. Be theology-centered. Be a sovereigntist. We want to be managed by God, not by ungodly thoughts, not by regret, not by living a legalistic mindset. We want to make sure that we are God-centered in our parenting. Don't compare yourself to other people, which is an easy temptation when your children aren't doing all that you see in the other children. By the way, all that you see in the other children is not all that the other children are doing. Nobody's as great or as perfect as you might think they are, but nevertheless, don't compare yourself to other people because that can lead to self-pity. Point number four, watch out for self-pity. Number five, guard against false guilt. And this is, we can self-sabotage our own souls uh, as we look in that rearview mirror and that we can heap guilt on us that is not legit guilt. It's not too late, so if you have done things that you're guilty of, 
clean up those things the best you can. But make sure you put fences up that you don't take on guilt that is not yours, which also means don't fall for accusations. That could be you accusing yourself. It could be your children accusing you for the life that they have. It could be other people accusing you as well. Don't fall for accusations because you don't want to become that victim-centered person. The big idea is that we aim to release our children into the culture where they will eventually live. We want them to live less under our guidance and governance and more under God's direction and authority. Before you go, I would love for you to consider just a few things that you would pray for our ministry. Follow us on all the social media platforms that you are on, and then uh, share our content widely with anyone, with whosoever will. Uh, please uh, be generous in sharing our content. And then for those of you who are able to support our ministry, this content is free. What you're watching is free, and the only the only way that we can pull this off is through the support or the uh, donation of those people who are able to do that. And if you are, please consider helping us financially. For some folks who would like to jump on or learn more about our all-online training program, I would encourage you to check out our Mastermind program. If you're looking at the screen here, you can put your phone camera uh, over this QR code, and it will take you to the informational LMS on our website, and it will tell you all about our Mastermind program, Maybe this is a good season for you. My name is Rick Thomas. The webinar is Parenting Our Children from Zero to Adulthood. I appreciate you watching. You can watch the video, listen to the audio, and please share what you have heard here with a friend and let them know perhaps this would be something of interest to them. We're at lifeovercoffee.com, and we're quite interested in conversations for transformation, so I trust that you will go have a conversation with a friend that will lead to transformation. God bless. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us. Learn more and get access to other resources at lifeovercoffee.com.